thank you so much for joining Really Specific Stories, Manton. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. Now, I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask each guest, and that is, how did you first get into podcasts? Ooh, great question. Let me rewind back in my mind a little bit. I, I followed blogging since the early days and what Dave Weiner was doing. And so I kind of was around paying attention when podcasts got started, when RSS was kind of envisioned and he started experimenting with enclosures and automatically downloading things to your computer or iPod. And of course, podcasts came from the iPod, which is no longer a device that is sold, but we, we have the pod that lives on forever, probably. And so I was kind of paying attention, and I did a couple experiments with just around the podcast space. Actually, one funny thing I always think about is this tool I built called Podcast Shuffle, which was just kind of silly, but it, it shows how much podcasts have changed, I think, in the years since then, which was, you know, whatever, 15, 20 years ago, however long that was. And it, it basically crawled some directory of podcasts and just made a podcast feed with a random podcast for you to listen to, just from all the podcasts <laughs> that were out there. And that would just be silly today because there's so many podcasts. Who knows what you're going to get? And, and you probably don't care about it because you can go find your own podcasts that you, you know, that are topics that you care about pretty easily now. But back then it was just this random experiment to like, Hey, here's a podcast. Here's what's out there. Try try listening to it. And so I experimented with some things like that. And then I did record a few episodes, four episodes of a podcast just for my own self. That was like shows like 20 minutes per episode and it was about like one topic. Like I talked about trains once I talked about video games once and just kind of experimenting and it was highly edited. It, like listening again now, it, I made a lot of mistakes with the editing uh, and the sound quality, but it, the idea was to go for like more telling a story and not, not kind of an interview show or a like off the cuff show. So it was more scripted. And then fast forward a little bit and I started a podcast corn tuition with Daniel Jalkett. And, you know, we knew each other from the Mac and, and then iOS developer community. And we've been doing that show ever since. So that's, that's, uh, I think in a nutshell, that's my, what comes to mind with podcasts when I think about it. I love that. And there's already so much to discuss. <laughs> I threw a lot out at you at the beginning. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's great. So much great detail. Even just the word shuffle there. I love how much kind of uh, on brand that was maybe for that particular era. Maybe you preempted or followed things like iPod shuffle. But yeah. yes, certainly of the time that uh, that that happened. Before we get to core intuition specifically, I'd love to know a little bit more detail maybe in that early period. What was it about on-demand audio and things like RSS and experimenting with these tools that you were doing, what was it about those technologies that captured your imagination? Yeah, I think it just felt really new and interesting. And I was into blogging and it was kind of a natural next step. You know, I was already, you know, had a, 
RSS reader where I was subscribing to people's blogs. And then it just felt natural that, oh, yeah, of course, I want to actually subscribe to people's blogs that are that are audio, audio blogs. And audio blog actually, I think, was a kind of a term that was thrown around a little bit at the time also. And it just made sense. And also, you know, there were certain activities, and I would say it was true at the beginning of podcasting, it's still true today, where you're out and about, you're in the car, you're walking the dog, you're doing chores. There's there's all these things that everybody does uh, that it just fits to listen to something. You're not at your computer, you're not staring at your phone, and it just felt really natural and exciting too. This was kind of like a new technology, but it was based on something that I understood well and that it just, I don't know, it just felt like it was, it was here to stay kind of. And at, at the time there were also a lot of experiments that didn't really pan out like video podcasts never really took off, but I remember subscribing to some video podcasts because of course podcasting, you know, the technology behind podcasts really has nothing to do with audio files. Like it's just a way to tell your device to download something, you know, offline. And it, it could be an image. It could be a audio file. It could be a video file. It could be whatever. And so some people were experimenting with video podcasts. And I remember, I think it was, there was a show, Merlin Mann did a show for a little while. And I remember like watching it on my t- like TV somehow i don't remember <laughs> really i don't remember mm. like i don't maybe it was like it, it must have been before the apple tv so i don't know how i hooked that up um the the de- technical details maybe it was when the first apple tv came out but technical details are lost but i just remember like people experimenting with like a video show that was powered by rss and that like i feel like that never went anywhere it was just kind of an experiment and I don't know if it didn't go anywhere because video is turns out really hard to do well, and there's lots of bandwidth and storage, and it's just it's difficult. I don't know if that was the reason, or uh, if or if it gets back to the one of the things that is just resonates with people about podcasts is what I said about being offline and away from your computer, and you know taking a walk and just listening in the car and all these other things. And video doesn't work for those things. After you said the word shuffle earlier, I'm also glad that in this series now the Apple TV has come up. And I'm assuming you're referring to the first one, which was essentially like that silver Mac mini inspired thing. Yeah, that must have been it. I I will have to refresh my memory about what was going on, like what year that was. But I remember watching some of these on my TV. So that had to have been when the first Apple TV came out. No, I, I loved that thing because... Uh, it was kind of cool for the time. And I remember that it got so warm that you could probably fry an egg on it. <laughs> that was a, a fascinating point. But yes, the whole front row interface and that little white iPod shuffle style remote. I remember that very well. Mm-hmm. Now, you've brought up an interesting point about podcasts being something that you listen to while you're doing something else, walking the dog, cooking, other kind of activities. When you were listening to podcasts, you said it was the natural next step from blogging using that RSS infrastructure. When you think about the content and the themes and the genre of what you were listening to, was technology as a topic also that natural thing for you? Or were there other things in your sphere? What can you tell me about that? Uh, For things like what I would want to listen to or follow? Correct. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I think there were definitely... 
a lot of podcasts that even as today that leaned very technical, but there were also people just trying things. And I remember one podcast that always stuck out to me. Oh, there's like a couple things I can think of. One, I remember um, Brian Ireland, uh, who I used to work with a friend of mine, haven't seen him in a long time, but he did a podcast in the early days. that was more like a radio show. Like I'm going to, I'm going to play some songs and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk about this and I'm sure there's stuff like that now, but I remember that sticking out. It's like, Oh, that's an interesting use of podcasts, more like a traditional radio show. And then the other one that I always remember, and this isn't something that I would have, I would like seek out as like, Oh, I really looking for this. I want to listen to this. I don't remember the name of it, but um, it was someone in uh, a priest in Europe and he did this podcast where he would, he would kind of talk about religion, but more than that, he would just talk about like his day. And he would, I remember he would just like be biking through like Rome or wherever he is. And you could hear the sounds around him and you got a feel for like where he was and what was, and that was just, I loved that. It was like a window into his life briefly. I wish I could remember the name of that one. Um, so there were, there were things like that. And, and because there weren't that many podcasts in the early days, I feel like it was in a way almost easier to accidentally find a podcast that was interesting that was outside what you would normally listen to, where now I, I feel a little bit stuck in, you know, here are the tech podcasts I listen to and, you know, these, these, I don't know, just, I feel like I don't branch out <laughs> quite as much maybe just because there's just so much. Where do you start? That's an intriguing point because something I think we hear a lot about in podcasting today is how discoverability needs to be enhanced. But you're suggesting that discoverability was maybe more serendipitous or easier in the earlier times. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's almost cause, because it wasn't easier in that if you were looking for something specific, you could find it easier. It was, yeah, it was more like you would accidentally stumble on something. Whereas now I don't think you accidentally stumble on podcasts very often. If you want to find a podcast about something, you know, like there's a book you're reading and that author, you know, you want to know everything, every interview he's been in or she's been in, or there's a cooking thing you're interested in. Like you could easily, I think, kind of go into some of these podcast directories and find shows that are relevant, but maybe you don't accidentally stumble into them. And, and that, I, I guess it kind of ties into that that silly tool I built, the podcast shuffle, uh, just randomly giving you a podcast to listen to. Uh, and even and it wasn't even a podcast; it was just a, just one episode. So then it was up to you if you liked it to go figure out how to actually subscribe to that podcast. So on top of that tool for shuffling that you've mentioned, how did you make that transition from being? an enjoyer or a listener of podcasts and making tools for discovery to actually making them? How did that spawn from your technological fandom? Yeah, I guess it just seemed like something I should experiment with and try. And it, you know, I was blogging pretty often and it did, the way I started podcasting was not like we're talking today, you know, where you and I are talking and we're going over topics. It was, I kind of scripted like this is a topic I want to talk about. And so what I was really interested in doing was like pulling together like sound bites and audio from different things and putting them together in like one show. And so it, I, I only did, I think four episodes and it wasn't like once a week, it was, 
like months, you know, would go by because it took a long time to edit them and, and put them together. So for me, it was more like a blog post in audio form. And, and the reason it was better than the blog post was that I could say, now I'm going to splice in this clip of something else. So like this trains podcast, which I still kind of, it's got problems when I re-listen to it now, but like I still <laughs> kind of have a fond uh, place in my heart for it because it was fun to do. And it kind of captured the uh, kind of the, uh, the time, I guess that I was living in um, things I was interested in. And, it, and so it was like, I would have train sound sounds in the background and I would have like clips from like, you know, Disneyland and, you know, just like different things like that put together. And that was really interesting and fun to me. You know, it was, it felt like a new medium, kind of like creating something new, but it was still, it's still kind of, it felt like blogging plus audio. It still kind of felt like that to me. And maybe I'm being presumptuous here, but what you just mentioned about soundscapes reminds me of the podcast that you mentioned by that priest with <laughs> atmosphere in the background. Was that kind of an ode or maybe. a homage to that? Podcast? I didn't think about it. I don't think consciously, but I'm sure I was inspired by that kind of thing. And also like the NPR style of public radio shows like that, like those that are really well done, I am sure was an inspiration too. And mine does not match the quality of those shows, but you know, those like very scripted, you know, well edited, like we're going to tell you a story and we're going to put together interviews or sound clips and, you know, different things together. I'm sure that was inspiration too. Well, I know that it's a lot of work because uh, in the podcasting that I do, most of it's conversational. We might drop an audio clip in very occasionally, but it's a totally different story, as you say, to actually collect different things and piece it together. So yeah. I don't blame you for not doing it weekly <laughs> or, you know, some other yeah. more often schedule. And I mean, I mean, part of the fun I had with it too was I recorded a bunch of those things myself. So I, I would go at, like on a trip, uh, like I did one of my the episodes was about San Francisco. And so I was in San Francisco for Apple's worldwide developer conference. And I had my little portable microphone set up and I would recorded things, you know, I remember like walking through Chinatown and recording audio of, you know, what's going on around me and recording like the sound of the, uh, cable cars and just like, you know, things like that. And so it was almost, as I think this through, it was almost, it was almost more of like an excuse to like go out and record things <laughs> and put them together. Mm. And so that, but, it, but it was just so much work, you know, it's like not something, and that's why I only did four episodes. Like there's, it, it requires a lot of work. It's not something you, most people could just put together in a few days, I think. Interesting that you bring up the Worldwide Developers Conference because that event these days is quite a different beast. It's, you know, streamed and now they've brought back that physical element for those who can go post or later in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. When you were there in those early days recording things and experimenting, was podcasting something that you recall came up a lot or that other people were trying to experiment with? Did you discuss it much at events like that? I don't remember exactly. I'm sure we must have been talking about it. I don't remember. I'm sure. I'm sure we were. I'm sure because I, I feel like podcasts in that kind of you know developer community kind of tech world they were probably more popular there than in the mainstream. So I'm sure we were talking about it, but it was like the iPhone hadn't really 
uh, I, I, I should have looked at the dates, but I think, I think my first podcast predated the iPhone. Um, so you didn't have, you know, apps like we have today, <laughs> podcast apps that are the primary way most people I think listen to podcasts. So, I mean, you did, uh, you know, iTunes built in podcast support, and that was a big boost for podcasting. And that was actually in the WWC keynote, they announced the new version of iTunes with podcast support. So, so yes, we must have been talking about it. And that must have been, I feel like everyone in the community must have been clued into that. But the details are a little bit fuzzy in my mind now. No, no, that's fine. I'm asking to cast your mind back quite far. So don't worry about that. Now, when we started this discussion, you did mention the show Core Intuition, and WWDC obviously has that big crossover with other tech fans, Apple developers, just Apple users in general. How did you come to start making a show like Core Intuition? And <laughs> can you tell me the process really about uh, becoming a producer in that? Yeah, I think this is something that Daniel and I wish we had documented better <laughs> about like how we got started. I know, uh, you know, we had met at the conference, and I'm pretty sure we had met before we started the show. And we were in, uh, we were in an IRC chat uh, with some people, and for you know, it's kind of like Slack. A lot of people are in Slack channels now, and IRC was more popular back in the day in the Mac developer community. And so we were like chatting and kind of staying in touch and for some reason it popped up. They're like, we should do a podcast together. And I, like I said, I wish I knew what prompted that, <laughs> but it just, I, I remember we were just chatting and like, Hey, we should do a podcast. I'm like, okay, let's try it. And so we recorded, yeah, we recorded a show and we weren't sure exactly where it would go. And I edited it and I thought it turned out pretty well. And you know, we put it out there and it was around WWDC too. Cause I know when WWDC comes around, usually in June every year, I always remember that was kind of like the anniversary of our, our podcast coming out too. Cause I believe the first episode was maybe a week or two before we went out to WWDC. And so it was a nice time to talk about like expectations and like, what do you think Apple's going to announce and what are we working on? So we did that. Yeah, we did the episode and there weren't a lot of Mac developer podcasts at the time. There were a couple, but it wasn't like like it is now with a lot of podcasts that are really focused on Apple announcements and following Apple news. And so we did it. The response was good and it was great to, you know, run into people at the conference and they had checked out the show. And then we, yeah, we just kind of kept doing it. And at the beginning, it wasn't as regular as, as it is now. We didn't have any sponsors. And a lot of times we would record a show and then I would kind of drag my feet on actually editing it and putting it out. So sometimes a month or two or more would go by before a new episode. And then eventually we, we got sponsorships and that really pushed us to keep the show going regularly every week because we <laughs> need to be held accountable to uh, someone else that wasn't just us. And uh, so we've been doing the show ever since. And it hasn't changed a lot, to be honest. It feels very similar to that very first episode we did. The format and kind of the things we talk about are really similar. 
You brought up sponsorships, uh, which I suppose, given what you just said, that the show hasn't changed too much, the major element that's changed is the sponsorships, both in maybe how it sounds and how you've been motivated to produce it. Yep. When you started doing sponsorships, how did that change the feeling of what you were producing or how did it make you think about your role as a producer relative to the other things that you do in your life and the other work that you do? Yeah. I mean, so the, the main thing is it, it turned it from something fun we kind of do whenever we can to more of like a small business. And so there were the, the, the format, I feel like the format we were, we stayed pretty consistent on like the theme music at the beginning has never changed. Like the, we introduce ourselves and we talk about a couple topics and we have, you know, a couple breaks in the middle. And the main change was like the break in the middle. We now talk for a couple minutes about our sponsor. It was great to push us to keep the show going, but it did add some paperwork and some, uh, just like the things that come along with running a business, you know, invoicing, following up with sponsors. I mean, I think Daniel would agree with me that we are like notoriously bad at like marketing and like reaching out <laughs> to potential sponsors. So we were really lucky that some sponsors just kind of fell into our lap. And I think that was easier in the old days when there just wasn't that many podcasts also. So you could kind of demand maybe higher sponsorship rate. You didn't have to work quite as hard <laughs> to find sponsors. Now there's so many podcasts that um, I feel like maybe it's a little bit more difficult and our listeners, we, you know, we, we've kind of grown a little bit and then like maybe lost some listeners and like, as, as there became more choice for people and it's, it's never, we've never had the huge listeners that some of the tech podcasts in the Mac world have, um, you know, things like the talk show with John Gruber, accidental tech podcast, those kind of like really big podcasts, some of the podcasts on relay FM that are popular. Like we've never really reached that level where it's just, it's, so it's, it's kind of stay, if it, I don't know how to describe it, but it's kind of, it's a business, but it's small still where it's not something we can dedicate, you know, full time. Like we're running a podcast network or we could contract out like someone to handle, you know, marketing and invoicing. It's like, it's not at that level, but especially when we have like a sponsor that has been really consistent, you know, like that will sponsor every two weeks for years, it is like a business and there is money coming in and invoicing happening. And I, I, I want to say that doesn't change how we talk on the show. I think that's true, but it does maybe change a little bit how we approach the timeliness of the show, how we approach just uh you know we can't be lazy and just like (laughs) just like talk every once in a while and put out a show we actually have to be consistent with it now you mentioned audience as well which is interesting because yep new ones have come and gone there are big shows there are small shows when it comes to other projects and things that you do, such as micro.blog, which uh, listeners would probably be familiar with uh, if they follow you in any way how does that kind of crossover or do you find any cross pollination between different audiences or services that you have given that you are so active on the web? Yeah, I think so. And I think there's some people I've been really happy to see people on micro.blog that never had heard of me, never listened to, you know, my podcast and actually they're not developers. They don't really 
care that much about <laughs> like the topics that Daniel and I talk about, but they still tune into the show because uh, one of the things that's great about podcasts, I think, especially, you know, just like as we're talking now and some of these other similar shows where you feel like people are sharing kind of personal stories, you feel a connection to the hosts, even if you've never met them and maybe you've only followed them online, you feel you have like this little window into what they're thinking. And maybe they don't share everything about their life. Like personally, I don't share online everything. I don't share very much about my family or just kind of more private things, uh, except very rarely, but you still feel like you kind of have a little snapshot of what this person uh, is going through. So I feel like we have some of that crossover with blog, where I know we have people from blog from the community there that listen to the show even if they don't really care about the topics, it just it's it's another kind of interesting way to follow someone. And I I feel I do the same thing. You know, I have podcasts I listen to, you know, where I don't know the people, I don't maybe even totally care about <laughs> what they're talking about, but it's there's some kind of connection <laughs> there. And I I guess I would go even back to like that podcast I mentioned with the 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 priest. I, like that's not a topic that I would just search out. But I just felt like I knew this person almost, you know, it's like they're, like I said, they're like walking through the streets in Europe and like I hear the sound of the market that they passed and it's just like really fascinating way to connect with someone, I think. I'm really intrigued by what you were saying about the level of stuff that you share online in your accounts or in any kind of social media sphere. If someone were to come up to you and ask what is the podcast that you do, Core Intuition? What is it all about? And really, maybe this is a level of detail too far for such a question, but who are you or what do you do on that podcast? How would you describe what you do and the persona that you've created for yourself? Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would I would talk about like the theme of that show has always been like independent developers. Like we are just two people trying to build apps mostly by herself and make it work <laughs> financially and just, you know, our sanity. And, and that theme has actually been there from the very beginning when I was not really independent at all. Like I had a full-time job working for another company, but then kind of on the side, I had this other life of working on my own things. And, you know, that's not uncommon you'll have a lot of developers or people in any business where, you know, they've got a hobby or something on the side that they maybe would like one day to turn into the thing they really do. And so that was always a little bit of a conflict at the beginning on the show. It's like, we were really talking about being independent of developers, but I did have a regular job that, <laughs> and, and I always, I always felt a little weird about that. I wasn't hiding that. Like sometimes on the show, we would talk about my job and the things I was doing, but it kind of felt pretty good when I actually quit my job. And the only thing I could talk about was my own apps and, and then micro.blog as independent business. And um, so I, I think that independent developer is really the focus on that show of like the things that we go through as just people trying to figure this out. And that it's not, that's only a part of my life, obviously, but it's a huge part. Um, so like everything on the show, I feel like we're really honest and we don't try to, I don't know, hide anything or make it sound better than it is. Like a lot of times we will go through topics that are just, they're difficult. I mean, we don't want to depress our listeners. We try to keep it fun <laughs> and entertaining, but, uh, 
it's uh, like we talk about, I, I hate to use the word struggle because it's like we're pretty lucky that it's not an actual struggle, but the uh, the difficulties of like running your own business, trying to get apps out, trying to fix bugs, trying to respond to customers, just like that real stuff that actually happens. And as an independent developer, that major business that you're running, I mean, not just yourself, you have other people supporting you, but yeah. uh, it, it is really you as the founder with micro.blog. I feel like you've kind of gone full circle. You mentioned that idea of experimenting with tools for podcasts and delivering things to people on demand. And now with micro.blog, of course, that's a blogging platform and very flexible and you can do different posts and design all that stuff. But one of the options that you have on that site is to actually launch and distribute your own podcast as a user. Yep. So what led you to introducing a podcasting kind of service or distribution mechanism for micro.blog? Yeah, I, of course, love podcasts. And I got into this idea of like, what if podcasts were short, like some podcasts? And so I kind of said, like, let's call them microcasts. You know, they're always like short podcasts. And I started, I've completely, somehow I forgot about this when I was describing <laughs> the podcasts I do. But I started a podcast that I called Timetable. And the idea was they would be very short, like five minutes. And I would eventually try to do them often, like every day or every couple days. And I would document the process of building micro.blog, writing the book that I promised Kickstarter backers. And I would go just go through things. And I and I also I wanted to experiment a little bit in that format, like that five minutes. Because it's so short, it's easy to edit, it's quick. And so you can do other things. So I remember I did very similar to my old podcast. I did things like when I was like mailing stickers to people that backed micro.blog and Kickstarter, I like recorded the sound of like the mailbox, you know, like, <laughs> you know, mailing the envelopes. And I record, you know, I recorded a couple, at least one show, like in the rain, like we can hear the sounds and like, I just experimented with stuff like that. And it was fun and easy because it's five minutes and it takes five minutes to record, you know, maybe a few more minutes if there's some stuff you want to cut out. And it's very quick to edit because it's just five minutes long. <laughs> and so I love that idea. Unfortunately, I've gotten out of the habit of doing that. But but that really, that idea got me into thinking, well, we could host that for people. It's only five minutes. There's not a lot of bandwidth and storage constraints. Uh, it's It's not that much different than hosting a photo or a few photos for someone. It's short, it's quick, the audio file is small, like we could do that. And so I got really excited about the idea. And I think that was the first micro.blog premium feature where we charged a little more. Uh, the normal subscription is $5 a month. And I said, you know, we're gonna charge $10 a month and you get podcast recording. And we've added a whole bunch of things to that premium tier since then to make it more valuable. But that was the launch of it. It's like, we're going to let people host their podcasts. They're going to be short. And let's see what people do. Because if they're short, people can experiment, they can try things. And maybe we'll get people podcasting who just couldn't deal with it before. Like it was too daunting. You know, you look online about how to start a podcast. And first they say, you know, spend $300 on this microphone and this mixer and these special headphones and, you know, then buy audio recording editing software. And it's too daunting for some people. Like they should be able to just 
record, quick show, and put it out there. And that was the goal, and that's still the goal with that plan. We've increased the limits a little bit, so you can record longer shows, half an hour, 45 minutes, or an hour, or whatever. But that was the goal. And that also, we made an iOS app called Wavelength, which was going to try to further that goal of like making it really easy to hit record, maybe cut a couple things out, quick editing, and then publish it. Just like microblogging is supposed to be a quicker, easier way to blog short things, that would be our approach for, for podcasting. So ease of use was a huge focus. I'm, I'm hearing that. And when you think about other services that enable podcasting, whether it's you know things like Anchor or otherwise, mm-hmm. how did you think about designing something like podcasting on micro.blob through tools like Wavelength? What kind of ideals or uh, goals did you have maybe beyond ease of use, if at all? Yeah, mostly just uh, making, I guess, making it easy to, I guess ease of use is the big thing, you know, making, making it more approachable for people. So it doesn't feel like a big leap from, you know, I'm typing things in and hitting publish to I'm recording something quick. And publishing it. So a lot of that is just managing the RSS feed for the podcast. And, you know, by default, a micro.boy, if you, you, you upload an MP3, like it just does everything. Like you don't need to do anything else. You don't need to enter anything. You know, it just, it takes, if you haven't entered a podcast name, it just uses your, you know, your blog name. If you haven't entered a blog name, it just uses your name. <laughs> and, you know, it creates the feed and you just don't have to worry about it. It just does everything for you. And of course, there's more tinkering you might want to do and customization. But that that was the idea is just take care of the basics so they don't have to worry about it. And I think we had somewhere, it's probably somewhere still in our marketing, but we had this phrase like everybody has a story to tell put out your ideas, thoughts, stories, whatever. And I, the idea was hopefully that some people would find it just more natural to record something and publish it than type it up. And, you know, it's, for the most part, I think that's worked out. Um, we're definitely not, you mentioned Anchor, they're much bigger. And of course, they're acquired by Spotify now. They have a huge, um, you know, force <laughs> behind them. And they've done a bunch of interesting things that were just way out of scope for what we're able to do with just just a couple people. Um, Wavelake was developed by me and my friend um, John Hayes, who has helped with a bunch of micro.blog projects. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm sure Anchor has a team of a dozen people, and they they've done a bunch of interesting things with multiple users and editing. And there, I'm sure there are other tools like that that are even beyond you know what what we've been able to do. But it, I, I think there's something to that, you know, making it more approachable. And if you even go back to those early days of podcasting, you know, Odeo had, they were, they were a company that Twitter was spun out from, like one of their first products, you know, was like podcasting, basically. How do you make it easier for people to podcast where they just, you load up a web browser and you can record a show and publish it. And it, they were probably a little too early or maybe a lot too early, like five or 10 years too early. But they had a really cool product. They were a little early, didn't quite work out. So they pivoted and now we have Twitter. But I think there is something to that idea of just making it easier for people to publish audio online. You make a great point that some people might find it more natural to speak or send out a microcast or micro.blog or Twitter uses like that where you're just putting out 
quick bites or shorter posts, that can be easier for people. I, I totally understand that. And in that response that you just gave me, and I don't want to lose that point, you said that it can be harder to type something out that's extended. And I recall that you also mentioned the book that you put out on Kickstarter. What led you to write that book and how would you explain the experience of writing an extended piece like that? Ooh, that what led me? I don't know what, what I was thinking when I <laughs> decided to promise that. Uh, for, for people who are not aware, um, that book is four or five years late being published. So I, I am not one to listen to for advice about how to write a book and publish it. It, the long story short, it, it has grown into a huge project, whereas I meant for it to be something short. And the, one of the reasons I, I I decided to write a book was because I thought it was a good fit for Kickstarter. I thought Kickstarter is often about like creative projects. You know, you're putting out a book or you're or um, some art or you're designing a game or like kind of like real things that are tangible, like you know, backers can, they back the project and they get something in the mail. Like the, the, I felt like that was a good fit. And one of the, the goals with micro.blog and the idea of indie microblogging in general is just to like get this idea out there of, Hey, don't put all your stuff on Facebook and Twitter, like put it on your own blog. And, and how do we make that easier? And, and just how can we build better tools around that? And so, a book fit that pretty well, I think, because it was like, not only am I going to build this platform, micro.blog, but I'm going to put out this piece of writing that's like, here's what I believe the world should look like <laughs> in terms of blogging and social networks. And it was maybe a little too ambitious because it has grown into a much larger project and it just kept kind of spinning out of control with just like, now I've got chapters and chapters on you know, how social networks work and just, it'll all be worth it in the end, but it has taken a long time to get to that point. And it's not like, I don't think I'm, when I described getting back to your question, like when I described people that might have trouble writing something out, I don't think I'm one of those people. Like, I don't think I've ever had a problem have, falling into kind of a good routine with blogging and writing. And my posts now on my blog definitely tend to be more short quick microblog posts and photos than longer kind of essays as they might've used to be. But I still have some of those. I, I just, I don't think I've ever had that problem, but I know some people do. Surely there are some people out there that just podcasting is just a better fit and it just feels more natural. And I know there are people out there because a lot of the podcasts I listen to, those people are not writing online very much. That just feels better for them to just kind of speak and let their thoughts kind of flow. Yeah, and without entirely spoiling the book, because naturally I assume you want to sell some copies or get people looking at it on the web as well. <laughs> um, if someone were to ask you, what is that vision for the web that you have? Because you said that part of it or a motivation was communicating how you think, you know, things like social networks and services should go. Where do you think they should be heading or in what shape should they be? Sure. I, there's, well, first of all, I do, I'm not going to sell any more copies. So, we don't need to worry about that. <laughs> the The <Okay>. draft <laughs> of the book is free online at book.micro.blog. So people are going to read that. It's, it's not the final draft. I've made some improvements that will be in the final version, but you can read all, all for free. I, I basically, 
made the decision that I, I'm not a full-time author and I don't need to sell this book indefinitely as a revenue source. So I sold all the copies that I'm going to sell. You can't buy it <laughs> anymore. So there's no problem. <laughs> like everybody who bought it will get a copy and everybody else can read it on the web for free. And that's, that's where it's going to end. <laughs> um, just because I didn't want this other thing to manage, but I'm getting off, I'm getting off topic a little bit. The basic premise is the kind of the vision for the web going forward having there's a problem with concentrating so much power in like just a few tech companies and one of the solutions is reclaiming some of your content putting in your own domain name putting in your own, your own podcast that you control and having more ownership of that so that you can move it around to different services without breaking the web without breaking links and without relying on you know twitter or facebook to tell you what you can and can't post. And on the same hand, kind of the, the flip side of that is having social networks, having networks like micro.blog or other platforms that try to bring people together, but have them smaller. And if they're smaller and you also have ownership of your content, like at your own domain name, these social networks can be a little more proactive about what kind of community do they want to encourage. And they, they don't need to be afraid of like, you know, this person, the hate speech is out of control. We need to tell this person to leave. Um, they can do that because there are other social networks out there. There are other blogs, other, you know, places they can host their content. Um, and so having that flexibility, I believe with smaller networks would actually enable better, healthier communities. And so that's what we're trying to do with micro.blog. And that, that, that kind of, that theme kind of runs through the book of like content ownership but also how do we approach social networks and these platforms so that we don't just recreate these big, massive platforms that just have so much control over the content out there. Well, as someone who enthusiastically uses micro.blog, I can say that uh, that vision sits pretty well with me. So I get where you're going with that. Absolutely. Thanks. And when you look at that book and you think about the podcasts that you've made and continue to make, and running micro.blog and all the things you've said about independent development over the course of your career and consumption of media. What do you think are some of the top things that you've learned or the ways that you've changed in all that you've done? Now that I have micro.blog, it's like, it's the thing that I've kind of maybe in the back of my mind, my career has been building to, you know, like things I've been interested in kind of coming together in this one big project that I see myself working on until I can't type, you know, on a keyboard anymore. Like I, I've, I feel like it brings together a lot of things I was interested in over my career with blogging, with podcasting and new things that I didn't know I was interested in, like with, with having a community of people, but that I find really fascinating now and, and, and an interesting challenge. And so it really, to me, it feel, I've been doing this for Microdog for five-ish years now. Like I said, I, I think 10 years, 15 years. Like I don't see myself getting burned out or bored with it. And I don't see anything else coming along that would pull me away from this idea. And like writing the book, I think, has only reinforced that in a way. It's just like feeling really strongly and passionately about some of these ideas, about the open web being more active in the indie web community, which is all about this kind of thing and own, you know, having ownership of your content and different open standards where we can have blogs and websites 
interact and communicate with each other through open protocols. Uh, it's just, uh, it feels good to, to have something that I just really believe in and that I can just keep working on. Like, there's no doubt. It's not like, I feel really lucky. A lot of people, they're not sure if they're going to stay at their job. They're not sure what their next thing should be. Like, I feel really lucky that I have something that I think I'm pretty good at, you know, things could always be better, but like my skill set has prepared me well over the last 20 years for building this. So I think I'm kind of uniquely capable to like, if someone's going to do this, why not me? Like, I think I can do it. And I, and I love it and it's very rewarding. And there's always new things that, uh, that I feel like we can bring to micro.blog, staying true to that early vision, but still kind of expanding in different ways. And podcasting, I think was a big part of that too. It's like, it might've felt like branching off into something different to some people, but to me, it felt perfectly in line with what Microdot blog was about. So like anytime we can add a feature that just fits perfectly into the vision, but giving people more tools. I love that. And I, I feel like there's still going to be more things like that with micro.blog that we can bring to people. Well, I think that's a fantastic summary of not only your career, but general philosophy and motivation. I'm not sure <laughs> I can really uh, make you say much more than what you did. Uh, but with that in mind and everything that we've discussed, is there anything that I haven't asked you about or something that's really important to you in the world of podcasting or the open work that you do on the web that you would like to discuss? Uh, I think we've covered a lot, actually. And I, I'm really glad that you had me on the show because it's gotten me to kind of delve back into, <laughs> into my, into my mind a little bit and try to dig up some of these things. Cause it's, once you get started talking about this, sometimes it, you know, I don't know how the brain works, but like, I feel like there's connections that are made and then all of a sudden, Oh, I remember that thing I did and that other thing. So there are probably other things, but I'm, I'm really glad we got to dive into some of that stuff and I can't think of anything else to add right now. No, I'm really glad to, and thank you. And look, if anything does pop up after the recording, that's what links and show notes are for. If you, uh, if you think of anything, and hopefully the uh, the listeners will enjoy plundering that as well with everything that you've mentioned. Well, with that, Manton, I think that's a great place to uh, end this episode. And I want to say a big thank you for joining Really Specific Stories. Thanks for having me. It's great talking to you.